Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. The title of today's show is a timing screen classic. That title provided by Mike Stoner on Twitter. Runner-up was the thriller for the French Gorilla also on Twitter by Jerome. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready, and I'm joined by Matt Two Rumpets. Good evening, Matt. Good. Well, I guess afternoon, evening to you. It's evening there, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, it is. Yes, and it is. I had a fantastic afternoon, though. And do you know what I loved about this race, Matt? Uh, no, tell me. Was I, it tires? I hope it's tires. It wasn't tires. I love the fact that I just knew nothing because i was sure mercedes had it in the first stint after max's mistake then i was sure they they definitely blew it and then i thought red bull had blown it with the second stop and then i thought max was definitely going to get hamilton and then for four laps i was absolutely convinced that hamilton had him covered i didn't know who was going to be on the podium which mclaren was going to win so either i'm just a terrible armchair fan or it was a genuinely interesting and intriguing race yeah, well, you're talking about a race that was decided by the thinnest of margins with two different strategies. And I think it's safe to say that to a certain extent, the outcome was very much down to the drivers as much as it was to the teams. And this season, we have definitely seen you can do different strategies. It felt like last season, even though we had good on-track action, there wasn't this divergence of strategies. It was pretty much we'd been stuck in like a one-stop loop, whereas at the moment... There is genuine options for teams. It's great. Yeah, it is great. It's been a long time since you've been able to run sort of a two-stop versus a one-stop strategy and make it work without some sort of fluke like a safety car or rain or something like that to help you along. And just to tell you that Matt sounds slightly different because he is on a vacation and is using significant spousal credit to be with us today. Because as always, we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves, Mrs. Trumpets, particularly this week. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. 
We were going to be joined by Kyle Power today, but Kyle decided to play a game where every time Paul DeResta took a shot at Lewis Hamilton, Kyle would take a shot of whiskey. Kyle died. So instead, we've got Brad Philpot. How's it going, Brad? It's going really well, Spanners. I had a great afternoon, as you did, watching some of the best drivers in the world battle it out and execute their strategies to the best of their own abilities. Yeah, and I know that Paul Ricard kind of gets a lot of stick and the track looks weird. There's no getting around it. The track looks odd. It has no character and all the character at the same time. But we've talked about track limits and how to enforce them and runoff areas so much on this show. Could it be that somewhere in the mess, and I'm not saying necessarily how Paul Ricard does it now, but they've kind of, in principle, edged towards a good solution for track limits? Maybe. There were certainly some parts, some elements of this track that I thought really lent themselves well to policing track limits. And I don't mean those yellow, banana, baguette, whatever you want to call them, <laughs> harsh curves. No, they were, I mean, yeah. the kind of curves that were just high enough that they made the cars bottom out a little bit, which dissuaded the drivers from running too wide. They were a disadvantage and you'd lose time when you used them. I don't like the stripy blue and red everywhere. And I did find it difficult to follow where the cars were on, you know, which parts of the track. But I made a concerted effort this time to to try, to to really try and focus on it, especially knowing I was on the podcast tonight. And I think I I think I achieved it. I basically understood what was happening. Yeah, because there is that scenario, Matt, where you're looking at a car and then suddenly it just disappears and you had no idea the track was about to go that way. Yeah, and I don't think you should feel too bad about that, Brad, because it seemed to me the uh, commentators were suffering with a similar issue. I didn't hear them calling out nearly as many turn names and numbers as they normally do during a race. So maybe, Brad, if they, instead of the red and blue, if they just painted them like the whole thing green, but still had the stripes of the abrasive surfaces, uh, they seem to work really well. Because in FP1, FP2, like Leclerc and Sainz, not, not Leclerc, sorry, Sainz and Vettel had big offs where they went backwards. And it was like a cheese grater on the tyres. And you could really see the damage it had done. Now, that's a good incentive to not go off track. But you can still get back to the pits. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, to be honest, we have to remember, this is mainly used as a test track. It's used, I mean, it is actually more used as a racetrack than it used to be. Um, but its main purpose throughout the year is is for testing. And it really serves that purpose well. As spectators, even Martin Brundle in the commentary mentioned that it actually made him feel ill looking at some of the higher up shots. And I, I agree. Yes. But anyway, this year it threw up a really interesting race. And we've also got, this is so exciting, guys. We've got such a diverse crew. So it's lovely that we've got another debutante making his first podcast appearance ever. It's Nick Alexander. How's it going, Nick? It's going very well. And uh, I know the show has been going very well. And we have some new listeners and, and some new viewers. And there's going to be a lot of people out there who maybe think it really is my debut. I don't know what you're talking about. But I will ask you what you think of Paul Ricard as a track. Like, is it good for racing? Can I just be a pendulum and jump to wild conclusions yeah. year to year, depending on how that specific weekend went? <laughs> no, 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 I think that's completely fair. But I think I think we said in previous shows this season that France was going to be interesting compared to the last few races. And we've certainly had that, that conversation privately as well, because I'd actually forgotten that it was two years ago, 2019, wasn't it, where... F1 fandom went mad because we had that one boring race and they were like, oh, France is the worst, it's terrible, F1 is broken. That was Paul Ricard, 2019, that kicked all that off. I remember that race uh, very well for 
not remembering it very well. I, I remember commenting that of all the Grand Prix that I had watched, the 2019 French Grand Prix was definitely one of them. Yes, that one didn't land, Matt. But my first impression of that track in 2018, I think nearly straight away, like Nico Hülkenberg, made the kind of move that you can only do if you know you're going to be safe on the runoff. Like, he wouldn't have made that move if there were walls there, if there were gravel there. And I've always had this kind of optimistic feeling about Paul Ricard, because at least you can go for it. It's just whether we can get our head around the weird, almost artificial track limits. Yeah, I think there is a valid complaint there about the lack of landmarks, making it difficult to orient yourself to the track. But I have a theory about why the 2019 race got panned It's because the traffic to the circuit was terrible, and I think all the broadcasters got (laughs) caught up in it and had a hard time, so they were just negatively predisposed to the track to begin with. Uh, It could be that. So let's just cover qualifying very quickly. Brad, the rookies struggling again. So we had Yuki Snowda and Michael Schumacher, uh, Michael Schumacher, Mick Schumacher causing red flags. And it seems to have been a little bit of a trait in qualifying that it's the younger guys this season that seem to be bringing these, these stoppages out. Yeah, perhaps. I I really enjoyed the qualifying session for the battle at the front, uh, especially because I thought the Mercedes guys were going to be a long way back initially when when Max was pulling out some amazing laps. Obviously, the session stunted a bit with Sonoda at the beginning, doing his wiggle backwards into the barrier. Um, And then I I loved watching him try and get first gear because I've been in that position in race cars with, you know, sequential paddle shift gearboxes like this, where even though you're clicking... It just doesn't want to go into the gear you're telling it. And then his engineer coaching him saying, just ease off the clutch a bit and then put it back down. And all these things that you do in all all different um, race cars through the, um, through the different series. And you can see his inexperience because he's, Mm. he's obviously not had that situation very often. Apart from that, sorry, go on. No, I'm just going to say with the gear thing, without getting too technical, if you've got a stick shift, like you are physically locating the stick into a gear position and pushing gear teeth in with the sequential gearboxes, you're kind of telling a computer to do a thing, essentially. So, like, is there a solution? I heard in commentary they were saying, like, if you kind of rock backwards and forwards, you can make it pick a gear. Yeah, so they they call it dog-to-dog, basically. It kind of gets stuck almost between a gear, and you have to you have to ease off the clutch, and in, in this case, it's clutch paddles, isn't it? Just to kind of rotate all the, all the cogs and, and everything that's kind of going on, and then the next time you try, sometimes it goes in, but maybe it won't. Sometimes then you have to try reverse instead and then try to go back to first and eventually it will work. Having said that, he had just smashed his gearbox into the wall. Um, so maybe it was a little bit knocked out of sync because of that. It might have been. Uh, uh, Matt, you've also pointed out to me just then that Stroll um, also had a bit of a shocker in qualifying because he was unable to complete his final lap. And it's almost become a feature of 2021 qualifying that you need to get that lap in quickly and you are punished if you delay or dilly-dally or aren't first out of the pits. Yeah, you're surprised someone like Stroll is just not entirely aware of the value of a good banker. Yeah, yeah. well, there you go. Matt, Nick, sorry. I'd like to defend him a little bit. Good. I mean, he put in a quality lap and it just happened to be deleted for track limits at, at turn six. And I know rules are rules and lines are lines and they're they're well marked and all that, but... He was barely over, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, what do you think of those track limits, Brad? I would prefer still to see, I mean, we've been talking about it for the last four or five years, just have like a sensor that tells you when you've gone over the line and just do it at every corner. And the sim races, we do have a fairly good system. I don't know, you can do it four times. If you beat the buzzer four times, you get an automatic penalty. 
we're close to that point, aren't we? They've started using that tech. I like that it's strict. Uh, I think if you're going to police it, then you need to police it and you need to be consistent with it. And the fact that there was this one particular corner where they seem to be paying a lot of attention and we were getting those close-ups from onboard and, and, and the off-board shot showing whether or not people were within the white lines. I'm glad they were policing that. And I just wish they'd do it everywhere. Like you, like yeah. you say, all the time, everywhere. Mm-hmm. I think that would be better. Awesome. Well, guys, it was, in the end, a very intriguing and exciting French Grand Prix. And as Brad pointed out, we got to see the best drivers, I think, that we could hope to to, to imagine battling out in what is a very, very tight championship. But the question is, where was the race won and lost? So I default to asking Matt where the race was won and lost because this is the hardest segment to put together and I would prefer that you did the work. And that is absolutely okay with me because I love nothing better than spending hours looking at sector timings, picking apart exactly where I think the moment the tide turned. All right. Well, tell us where the race was won and lost. Uh, I'm going to start with Thursday. Oh, don't do this. What well, it's gonna you're gonna go back to preseason in a minute. No, no, no. Actually, I, I I've I've technically lumped this under the start, but uh for people who may not have been paying as close attention as me, Honda brought new power units this weekend. And these power units have had a reliability upgrade. And would you believe that also means they have more power for longer now? As a result of that reliability upgrade. So for, for, for the longest time, we felt that Red Bull have been hobbled by low power. They complained heavily with Renault and then kind of took on the experiment and the development work with Honda, if you like. And it was always hobbling their biggest power, which was aero. And you, you thought for a long time, you know, maybe Red Bull are even better than Mercedes with their aero, but Mercedes can power through any deficit with aero. Red Bull have had to go against their ethos and against their greatest superpower by just trimming enough off enough aero to make up for a power deficit. Do we actually think that a Honda are up to Mercedes power unit levels now? Is that realistic or is it some combination of they're getting close and they can make a car that handles well with lower downforce? I think with the changes they instituted for this season, I think they are equal and probably in some phases of uh, certain circuits better than Mercedes. Fair enough. Brad, if you had the two teams there with the difference between a slightly lower downforce setup and a slightly higher downforce setup as a driver, because if you don't know, Brad's like a racing driver and everything and a tyre tester. Uh, which setup would you prefer? Would you prefer the Verstappen setup, do you think, or the Hamilton setup, given the knowledge we had, which is possibly that Red Bull had that advantage on us on the straight? The one you want is the one which is going to get you the best result. The one that feels nicest is obviously the one with higher downforce. You then notice that there's a problem if you're trying to battle a car with lower downforce, which is good enough through the corners that they can stay ahead of you. So if the higher downforce setup was the one which allowed you to have a, you know, you were quick through the corners and you had a big enough gap by the time you got to the straights that you were far enough ahead that low downforce couldn't attack you, then that's great. But as I think Mercedes found out today, they were just a little bit too far towards the high downforce. Having said that, they may not have had a choice. It may just purely be that Red Bull had enough grip, the car worked well enough yeah. in the corners that they could sacrifice a bit more than Mercedes 
were able to. And, and do you think, Matt, that Red Bull even went further and went for even less downforce in the race? That seemed, I think it was a comment from Perez seemed to allude to that. Um, I don't know about that. I, I, the thing that I know they did for sure was they put the lower downforce rear wing on for qualifying. Uh, um, okay. If, if they made uh, other adjustments after that, it would have had to have been mainly with the front wing or stuff they're allowed. The, the minor adjustments they're allowed once the car is in park for May. Okay, so you're thinking that the race was won and lost on Thursday. Anything a bit more? Anything a bit more race adjacent than we a can bit talk more about? Recent? You mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, actually, like the race. Yeah. No. Well, I'm actually about to say something that I think will be controversial. So everybody buckle down. But I'm going to okay. say, and ah, uh, it's tough. There's so many places you could choose. But I'm going to say the race was actually won and lost when Max made his mistake in turn one, and this is my reasoning. I don't think Mercedes was expecting to be ahead of him in the first stint. I think their whole plan was to undercut him from second place to take the lead. And not only did that throw their plans into disarray, I mean, although a good disarray, if you're Lewis, you're like, yay, I'm leading. But I think for Red Bull, it put them in the place where they are most powerful and the place they are most used to being which is chasing a Mercedes and trying to make the strategy moves to win the race. So I think it really oddly handed the advantage to Red Bull for Max to lose the lead straight away. Nick? I'm not sure that I'm entirely following you because if Red Bull is more comfortable and more accustomed to chasing the Mercedes, then surely the the converse is true. And you can't tell me that the Mercedes strategy department didn't cover the <laughs> scenario of what if our driver on the front row is leading at the end of the first lap. Uh, also, like Mercedes should should know by now what it's like to be up at the front. Uh, Brad? They also had quite a long time to regroup between lap one or corner one and the pit stops. So I think it's it's quite bemusing for me that they were able to make what I think is quite a big error at the first pit stop in the timing of, of Lewis's stop when they had that long to to think about it. And not only that, see other teams pit and see how powerful their undercuts were. And if I could just go one step further, just sat on my sofa at home, I spoke to my fiance who was sat next to me, bizarrely, she never normally watches the races. <laughs> and I saw how... Ricardo overtook a couple of people yeah. by undercutting them. And it was easy. It, it was a massively powerful undercut. And I don't see how Mercedes managed to fluff it quite that badly. They did definitely have, have signs. Uh, let's get to the undercut in just a second, Brad. Obviously, the first, I would say, and only misstep the the max side of the Red Bull garage made was in turn one. So just talking about that incident where he he sort of didn't quite make the first turn what do we think just wing wind related or was he too occupied with with lewis on his left from my point of view it just looked like such a minor error it was like just a, a tiny amount of momentum oversteer which is basically entering the corner with a, a tiny bit too much speed when the front can hang on and the rear can't quite stick with it and it only required a, a very small correction but as he said himself uh, it was enough correction that it just walked him wide and he was able to you know, just gather it up and, and only lose the one position. But it was a tiny error from yeah. Max that could have been, you know, race win losing. But the impressive thing was he seemed to identify it very early and pick the point at which he was going to go off. And like he, he identified and went, this has gone wrong. I need to go there. I need to come back, lose as little as possible. 
as you'd expect from Max Verstappen, who's clearly one of the very, very best drivers in the world, he, he felt it happening. He would have been expecting that as one of the list of things which could be happening when you're making a, a left steering input. You're always ready for some oversteer, which is going to throw you to the right. He, he recognized it immediately. And as you said, it, the earlier you can recognize a moment of oversteer, the smaller the action is you need to correct it. And and so he was able to just go slightly off track, avoid those horrible curbs, yeah. keep it kind of in that lane just to the inside of the curbs and rejoin with no problems other than having lost a position. Nicholas. It reminds me a little bit of turn 15 or, or 16 in Baku, where you have to decide whether you're going to take the runoff or, or hit the wall. make the left turn or not, <laughs> or hit the wall. And it's, it's yeah, he did very well to, to go around the bollards. It looked like he very easily could have driven right through the middle. Yeah, well, it's good. And imagine if that was a gravel trap, we would have lost Max Verstappen out of that race and, and lost what was, in fact, a, a very good race. But I think, Matt, that does bring us to where Brad was trying to shovel us, which was that first pit stop decision. And out of almost out of nowhere, Bottas decided to pit. And I don't know, I'm irritated about this. I'm irritated about this. We saw teams talking about it. So we saw Alonso on the radio going, all right, I, I, I think cars ahead are, are struggling as well i think we can do something about this i think we can go for the undercut and they went for it leclerc i believe was the first car to actually pit and go for the undercut ricardo as brad said ended up overtaking uh gasly and someone else i think as well in the pit stops um i've got that wrong but he did overtake two cars mercedes seemed to have a lot of indication that the the overcut the undercut was going to work but they didn't have to make a move as far as lewis hamilton was concerned Verstappen didn't look like he was on the verge of pulling the trigger, but once they decided to pit Bottas, Red Bull kind of had to react. So it feels like they 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 ruined that for themselves by bringing Bottas in. Toto Wolff later said, "Well, they had to because his tires were were done." Well, you didn't have to; you could just leave him out on rubbish tires for a bit and not lose the lead. Well, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, it's not just that his tires were done; it's that he had had a lockup. I don't remember which lap it was. And had flat spotted one of his tires and was suffering um. a fairly severe vibration. And so I think that at that point, Mercedes felt like Mercedes felt like, oh, let's just bring him yeah. in, undercut him in front of Max, and then we've got we can let Hamilton go as long as we want him to, which probably would have been around lap twenty five. That, that, that kind of that doesn't make it any better. That makes it worse. Then the Mercedes kind of lost that because of a, a flat stop that they were a flat spot that they were forced uh, to react to. Otherwise, I think they could have probably all gone on another four or five laps. Well, here's my question: Would it have made a difference in that scenario? Is there is there anything that Mercedes could have done to stop uh, Valtteri to stop Max Verstappen getting the lead? Brad, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong. But did they not wait until the lap? after Max pitted yeah. to pit Hamilton. So surely the the obvious thing they could have done if they really wanted to pit Bottas first to to start this whole process off is just pit Lewis on the next lap rather than wait two laps so that Max would definitely have an undercut. They could have just covered off the undercut and, and it seemed it seemed obvious to me sat on the sofa and I mm. never claimed to be um, clever at strategy. So it almost feels like when you have a team of people paid lots of money to make big strategy calls, there's almost too many people making a decision and they can't see the obvious thing in front of them. Uh, it, Matt, we've done this a couple of times and clearly we're not uh, as good at F1 
as the team strategists. But there's been a couple, like the attempted undercut at Monaco, where like it felt like the entire F1 world went, well, no, no, what are you doing? And then, and then here as well, everyone seemed to be screaming at the TV as well. But, you know, like I said, much easier from, from the armchair. But could it be a team that is just not used to this kind of pressure, having to make decisions? As someone said in our Patreon Slack group, does success hide failure? So does their massive success and dominance hide some shortcomings in this kind of snap decision scenario? Yes. Well, I think it's very fair to say that in any situation, when you are able to coast while your opponents are at their maximum, you know, I don't want to say you can get a little bit slack. Some muscles can go unused. Oh, let's be clear. Let's be clear. They didn't slack in terms of like engineering, driver skill, uh, stuff like that. It's it's the fact that they didn't have to exercise their, this this particular uh, strategy muscle really since 2018. So they've had 2019 and 2020 reasonably comfortable, especially towards the end of the season. Uh, Pretty much. Now, here to me is the interesting thing. This is the nut of it. With uh, Valtteri out first, he was inside undercut range on Verstappen. So first of all, you got to take your hats off to Max because he drove fast enough to cover the undercut. Yep. Then he came in, and this was crucial. On his outlap, his third sector was a 42.9. Wow. Compared to his fastest (laughs) to that point, which was a 44.1. He gained 1.4 seconds in a single sector. And that was the lap that Lewis came in. And up until then, Lewis had a pit stop on him. He was like right on the Delta. And in fact, you see, they came out practically side by side. But it was 100% Max's driving through those two laps that got him into the lead when Lewis came out. So like, yeah, if you were being safe, you'd bring Hamilton in the next lap, but he had the margin. It looked like to go that extra lap and have a little extra tire advantage. Because at this point we were thinking everybody was so one stopping all the way to the end. Um, uh, what do you think of the narrative, uh, Nick, that, that they were being greedy and that they were, instead of protecting Hamilton's P1, they were actually thinking of a Mercedes one, two concentrating on, Bottas undercutting Verstappen instead of looking, you know, maybe they were just assumed Hamilton was safe. I, I haven't heard that theory today. Um, I definitely think the default is, is to, you know, obviously give the preferred strategy to the front, the front driver guy, who's yeah. the front on track and also the front in their, in their hearts and minds and then the championship standing. So <laughs> my thought really, when I see Bottas come in first, is just that it's kind of, unusual and i'm like brad i'm like okay well they'll just bring lewis in next um and then they delay the lap and then uh what we need to mention as well i think is that hamilton had a very quick stop with 2.2 especially quick for for the mercedes standards and so i was kind of with lewis i was because i was not glued to the live timing i was really surprised when when max came out in front yeah and that is what happened max verstappen came out in front um, of the two Mercedes cars. Uh, and from that point, Brad, we had, uh, you know, a, a scenario that we were a little bit more familiar with, which was Hamilton really hounding Max Verstappen. And we also had Bottas, kind of uncharacteristically, I don't want to be unfair, but we're not used to it, look actually threatening for several laps to overtake Lewis Hamilton as well. For a short while, before he then immediately dropped to 2.4 seconds back and no longer looked like a threat. Uh, I'm sure I heard a commentator 
say something along the lines of, or maybe are they going to let Bottas have a go at Verstappen? Yes. <laughs> and and it made me laugh out loud because obviously that was yeah. never going to be a thing because he just he doesn't have the ability to do that. He's any time he's ever been in that position, obviously not. Lewis can't always pass the the Red Bull or whoever he's fighting, but yeah. more often than not, he's going to have a try or stick with them. Bottas in that position maybe can stay for one or two laps and then is just out of the picture. It's just not in his in his makeup. Um, and, and I had a similar a similar feeling when a comment was made later on about Bottas when um, Lewis was asking um, how how big the gap was to Verstappen when he was later on catching him, and someone the engineer Bono said um, it depends how long Valtteri can hold him up. And I thought, well, so obviously you're you're screwed then, Lewis. That was it's exactly the same thing. I don't know why there's this false faith being put in Bottas's ability. Um, anyway, sorry, I've, I've derailed. No, no, it, no, but- you're okay. In that particular battle, though. He was you're quicker right. for a moment. For a moment. And what you see quite a lot is Hamilton behind when he gets a run on someone, he's got more pace, all over the gearbox, really going for it. And, and you know, you see the gaps coming down, you know, like to 0.3, which is 0.4, which is real overtaking range. You, you hardly ever see Bottas getting into that zone and staying in that zone to, to have a sustained attack. Sorry, Nick. I just, I think this raises like a very interesting debate. So Brad says, obviously you don't let him buy, but then he, he quotes, you know, experience and history and, and context, if you will. And, and maybe we're being, maybe we're being, being pretty harsh on, on poor Valtteri there. But I just wonder, I kind of look at it, I guess, more of as, as if it was in a vacuum. You know, I have car number 77 or car yeah. X is 0.4 behind car Y without, really thinking about all of that. And I think just, I'm just looking at the screen and, and I, I was one of the people that thought maybe they should let him buy, to be honest. Yeah, but I think if they had let him buy, Nick, you know, he would have just quickly become a roadblock with a gap going to Verstappen looking at the what happened. I guess. So, I mean, I hear what you're saying um, and I don't necessarily disagree or, or have different perceptions or, or evaluations of his ability to overtake, right? But it's also kind of like, well, if you don't ever give him the equity, the opportunity to ever do it, well, then of course he'll never be able to make a move like that. Uh, Matt. Yeah. And you're not incorrect. And what was interesting about this particular situation, and I know everyone's like, oh, he fell off the cliff, he fell off the cliff. But uh, I don't know. I went and looked. He he was never more than about four and a half seconds back of Hamilton. And in, in, in fact, the lap he got passed on, he set an identical time to Hamilton. So we're used to him falling off a cliff and yeah. we like to impose that narrative. I think it was a little different. I think because we know he was expecting a two-stop, he wanted a two-stop. He told the team early on after he got on those new tires, it's going to be a two-stop. You should prepare for that. The team had different ideas, obviously, and we can discuss that in a bit. Yes, that will be our next thing. But uh, I just want to talk about this this crucial battle between Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen, because you almost felt like this was, it was now written into the stars. Hamilton's hounding him. He was in the DRS zones, lap after lap after lap for ages, Brad. Uh, But Verstappen just, he used that extra horsepower or less downforce on the straights, but was just flawless in his keeping it steady and and knowing where he had to be quick and where he could afford to, to not be. Yeah, so I wasn't surprised that Lewis was doing that initial hounding because in the first stint Lewis had pulled away I think about three seconds before the pit stop phase and so it did look like the Mercedes was pretty strong 
when they weren't behind someone. But the problem is when you are tucked up behind someone, as Lewis was with Max after the pit stops, if you have an advantage in the corners, that's largely negated by the dirty air. But the person in front yeah. still has the straight line advantage. So he wasn't able to, he effectively had Max, even if he had been able to go quicker than him, he couldn't do anything about it. He wasn't quick enough in the places he needed to be quick. And he never really looked like a threat to actually overtake, no. even when he got within three or four tenths at some, some point. So I kind of felt like the DRS was helping him hang on. So when he got to the three or four tenths, that was actually the DRS letting him close the gap. I think they, they said that uh, in commentary that it was worth 0.7 seconds a lap to be in both DRS zones. So that was what was keeping him close. And once he got out of the DRS zone, actually fell back relatively quickly before the will-they-won't-they Ross and Rachel type second pit stop decision came about. Yeah, exactly. And what that 0.7 seconds a lap that the DRS gains you fails to take into account is the amount of time you're losing in the dirty air through through the medium speed and fast corners so it but i agree with you entirely it looked like he was able to hang on with that but there wasn't ever really an opportunity for him to actually make a move whereas despite the tire delta and and different types of tire later on when max was the one chasing it was relatively straightforward to make a move Anyway, some nice feedback in our live chat room today. Stuart Neal says, Nick Alexander, we're so pleased you're back. We have missed you. That's absolutely lovely. And right at the beginning of the stream, somebody literally typed, yay, Brad Philpott's here. No no one's celebrated us being here so far, Matt. I know. I, I suppose it just comes mean, with the territory, doesn't it? Mean buggers. But you can join us in our live chat room. Search for us on YouTube by searching for Missed Apex Podcast. Uh, subscribe, like, do all the things. And also... Uh, do us a favour, just uh, subscribe to us on your podcatcher of choice. Don't rely on my flawed social media and the and me remembering to post it on Twitter and Facebook. Go, go ahead and subscribe so it's delivered to you, whether or not you listen or not, or go join the chat room or watch the video that week. I suggest flitting between the chat room and the live stream uh, and podcasts. Come and check out the video, see what we look like. Everyone is always very surprised. Everyone goes, oh, I assumed Matt was fat. And everyone is always very surprised that my face, admittedly, does not match my voice at all. Uh, right, now we're getting on to that, that second pit stop, Matt, aren't we? And as uh, F1 Mia says in the chat there, uh, actually, it looked at that point like it was Verstappen struggling with the tyres. And it looked like Hamilton was going to just either breeze past him or or something. It didn't look like it was Verstappen's race to win at that point. And we're all waiting. Who's going to roll the dice first? Bottas is screaming out for a fresh set of boots and to go again. In the end, it's Red Bull that roll the dice and pull the trigger. Yeah, well, what you ultimately love about this race is you have a slightly faster car with worse ability on tires versus an almost as fast car with better ability on tires. And so you're thinking that Max now is vulnerable if he goes all the way to the end. But this, the two-stop, the strategy they employed, what really freaked me out was Hamilton on the radio going, yeah, we want to undercut them next time. Yeah. And then bang, but, but three just, seconds ahead, and, and here goes Max, end of the pits. And once again, they have missed it. Yeah, but it, it feels like we've reverted back to a criticism we had of Mercedes in the last couple of seasons, which is a, a wait-and-see attitude. I, I think I unfairly called it a, a do-nothing attitude. I didn't mean that as a, an insult, but it's kind of like let the situation settle and then react. So they had reacting tactics, Brad, and it, 
it has backfired them on backfired on them a few times when they've had close competition against the Ferraris, in fact. But this time, yeah, it, it seemed like the whole world, Bottas and Hamilton, were screaming for another <clears> set of tyres. Bottas wanted the new tyres. Hamilton wanted the undercut, but they waited. I think we can't be as harsh on Mercedes for the second stop or or the lack of second stop, because at that point, and even now, despite Max having made it work, we don't know that that would have worked for the Mercedes. There are a couple of differences. First of all, obviously the car is, is totally different, but also they had Perez to to try and get past, who may have put up a fight and may have held them off. Max only got Lewis a couple of laps from the end. Was it one and a half laps yeah. before the end? So that there's no guarantee that in given the same set of circumstances had Mercedes pitted earlier, they wouldn't have maybe burned through the tires a bit too quickly or maybe got stuck in traffic slightly more than the max did. We just, we can't tell. It may still have been the best strategy for them to just stay out yeah. on that one stop at the end. Uh, uh, yeah. And, and I'll say a bit later, I think that strategy could have worked in a different universe. Nick. Oh, I just, it seems like uh, Bottas wanted to give two stops a try. I think he may have mentioned something about that from time to time. And I know it's a, a team strategical decision, but I, I have to think what the driver wants to do and what he thinks that he can get out of the tires. It has to be a very heavy factor in making that decision. I mean, Bottas wanting to give it a try is... I don't want to just keep throwing Valtteri under the bus, but yeah. when you're the car that's struggling more and you're not in the leading position it's a lot easier to tell the team that you want to do something alternative because at that point, you've not got a, as much to lose at all. So the the chance to have a run at glory is a bit more tempting. It, it's not necessarily still the fastest way. That's that's my feelings. Um, uh, my understanding is it's not him saying, oh, you got to get me on a second tire so I have a chance at a podium. Although he did say that that cost him, but that early on after the first stop he was like i don't think these tires will make it all the way to the end in a competitive state and that was the choice that that was the only choice mercedes had once max came in all right but most fascinating out of all of this was i think a, a reaction to what happened in monaco so once max verstappen pitted they're on the they're on the pit wall going all right lewis what do you think we should do and this really reminded me of of a, a race I've referred to quite a few times, which is was Paul DeResta having kicked off uh, the team for making bad pit stop decisions. The team eventually came on the radio and said, OK, Paul, here's the situation. Tell us what you want us to do. And it was that was from quite a passive aggressive point of view. This one, Brad, struck me as just a tinge of we don't want to upset you, Lewis. We know we dropped the ball last time, so we'd really like your input. But uh, it's not ideal. I don't think that's ideal. Those calls, they should be really made by the pit wall, but the driver can interject and like give his opinion. But generally, I didn't like that. I didn't like them saying, what do you think we should do? We're, we're genuinely not sure, and we don't want you to be mad. The thing is, despite all the data and all, all the timing info that the teams have, it really is only Hamilton in that situation that knows exactly how much he's taking out of the tyres versus how much extra there is he could take out if he really needed to. And so it's really only him that can that can give them that accurate information, despite the fact we, we hear him complaining about tyres all the time. In reality, <laughs> he's very, very good on the tyres. And even if he wants fresher a fresher set, a lot of the time, as we've seen in the past, he can eke them out. And today he did the same. He, he was able to eke that set of tyres out to be 
relatively competitive yeah right until almost a race oh, win no. you know a, a couple of laps away so it's quite a marginal call so I, I don't i don't hold it against the team for for kind of leaving that particular thing up to him matt and i just want to add especially because they had rain the track was green the temperatures were colder and of course we have the new tie rules that the teams were all coping with meaning that they're expect their normal expected data that they would use wouldn't be applied exactly the same way so yeah it makes absolute sense that you take someone with as much experience as lewis and say we're really on the fence with this what do you what do you have for us fair enough a goose home spain was a lesson for red bull and they learned it now this is absolutely fascinating because it's the first time in the in a long time where i think we've pretty much got two equal teams fighting up front and Whilst Mercedes are going about their business trying to be as Mercedes as possible, because this is what they've always done, is they've just pushed excellence. And they've just pushed that excellence as far as they can go and developed. Whereas Red Bull have been fighting against this Goliath. They have been David flying around with a slingshot for the last few seasons. And they are learning not just how to be excellent themselves, but how to fight Mercedes. And all of Horner's comments were based on well, last time we had this and we didn't want that to happen again. We didn't want to see Mercedes get fresh boots on and come and overtake us again. This time we wanted to take it to them. And this is just, it's so exciting, Nick. It's a real, real fight between teams being tactical over the course of a, a season and racing each other. And it's its personal and it's gritty and it's lovely. Yeah, this is what we've always wanted, isn't it? I mean, I don't know how much more I can in, add to the sentiment other than this is fantastic i love it excellent all right then so it gets us to the end game the end game with uh, lewis hamilton being chased down by uh, max verstappen with valtteri bottas in the way uh where where do we cover we're going to loop round to perez and mclaren in, in just a moment but it really was all about these three and uh, perez played his part towards the end not at the beginning again we'll uh, kind of loop back to that what do we think of the defense, Brad, of the Mercedes drivers? So it's the it's the journey of magnificent Max today, who didn't put a wheel wrong really after lap one, seemed to get everything out of those medium tires, was actually hanging on. I don't think his pace dropped off dramatically, did everything he had to do. Then he's faced with two Mercedes drivers. How, how do you rate the, the defense? So first of all, I, I was in two minds as to whether Max was going to get all the way up to P1 based on the pace because it seemed to be fluctuating quite a lot. The The amount of time he needed to gain per lap was was obviously you could work it out, you know, based on the number of laps left. And obviously at the beginning, he was making massive inroads and then that was becoming less and less as the tyre um, advantage lessened. And then it became clear he was going to, to catch Bottas and eventually Lewis. And when he got to Bottas, I'm sure we were all thinking the same thing he's Bottas will last a few corners and that's pretty much exactly what happened uh we'll get on to Lewis's attempt or non-attempt at defense in a moment as well <laughs> but from the Bottas move that Verstappen made we can probably all agree it wasn't great from Valtteri he essentially defended thin air he defended very hard when all that was required in that particular situation was a kind of half defense maybe roughly middle of the track just to dissuade um Verstappen from attempting a move Verstappen wasn't on for a definite move and I actually think he'd begun to break he'd already kind of given up and then because Valtteri defended so hard he was kind of forced to get past because Bottas went wide 
what Bottas should have probably done in that situation is something similar to what he did with Perez later on, where when he went deep, he then stopped on the apex of the right-hander in that chicane, prevented the other driver from then cutting alongside him and getting an easy run down the next straight. What he actually did was he went deep, he then tried to go too quick into the right-hand part of the chicane, let Max alongside, and it was... I don't even think Max lost any time. I think he went just as quick on that lap as on all the other laps, so... A pretty poor attempt him. at a defence from Bottas. He defended when he didn't need to. He made a hash of it. It wasn't great. And in a moment, I'll talk about Hamilton's. Yeah, well, in music we have a thing we like to say to people after they play solo sometimes, which is, love what you tried to do there. Okay. I love, he tried so hard, but yeah, you, you it, know, just, you, you, it wasn't you, the right thing. You know we're going to talk about trumpet playing later, don't you? Yeah. You know that. Okay, Brad. Okay, in, really fascinating. It looked like Hamilton just waved him through what was going on yeah i was a little bit disappointed with this um so i could see what lewis was trying to do lewis tried to do what bottas probably should have done but lewis misjudged it in the opposite direction or or he was completely resigned to the fact that max was coming through come what may but what it looked to me like lewis did was he made a small steering movement like a kind of little jink in the same way that i think valtteri should have done just to make the the driver the attacking driver think twice about making the move but in lewis's situation max was obviously close enough to make the move lewis needed a clear defense um rosberg gave a a brief kind of uh, suggestion after after the race he said why didn't lewis just try to defend and then go deep into the corner and try and hold max off Mm. he made it work at bahrain he he didn't have many laps left to do it and it did look like in a lot of the track you couldn't pass it was this key couple of areas you needed to just maintain track position. I, I've got a theory here that Max, uh, that, that Lewis did just almost wave him by because you can tell he's got the mentality of thinking about the long game. So they said, you know, it's a marathon, not a Snickers. Sorry, it's a marathon, not a sprint. He said at Baku and then had the unfortunate, you know, lock up with his fronts. And then maybe he just took that that mentality here today. You know, he's got, there's two laps left. Do Will I look worse for you know, dumping it off or coming into contact and ending up falling down the grid again? Or do I just take my 18 points and run? Brad? The only argument I can see in that in that kind of vein in favour of what Lewis did was maybe he felt under threat from Perez. Uh, and yeah. maybe he thought, if I defend this too hard, I'm actually going to lose two positions rather than one. I've certainly had that same mindset myself in, in real life racing and sim racing. You You kind of need to know when you're beaten. On the flip side... The points gap is was was quite small. Yeah, still- had he defended hard and they'd come into contact and they'd both been out of the race or damaged, and the points gap would still be quite small. But he does seem more risk averse, and yeah. he actually seemed quite content after the race with how it played out. Almost like this was probably what he expected before the race began. Uh, there's a quote here from Rosberg given to us by second since in the live chat. Why didn't he just ram him off the road? <laughs> Anyway, that's what I was thinking. Like Rosberg was going, why didn't he just close the gap like I did in Barcelona? If someone's overtaking you, just smash into them. Nick? I don't think anybody would ever intentionally cause a collision for championship purposes. I can't think of any time that that has ever happened. happened. No, I was actually um, really enjoyed Lewis's podium interview. And he he did. He seemed very calm, very chill, very realistic. You know, I, I thought... I mean, it wasn't a very long interview, but it did give a little bit of of insight into kind of what he thought about the strategy. Um, And it kind of seemed like he was 
expletive if he did and expletive if he if he didn't and he had like already come to terms with it quite in contrast with um i don't know if you saw there was a video on on the formula one subreddit of valtteri's cooldown lap and it, it's just absolute silence he's just absolutely fuming so very different the two sides of the garage there uh, yeah so what struck me most about this is that you'd think that that given the championship he'd defend her just but let's remember where Mercedes was on Friday. Yeah. Let's remember where yeah, Lewis yeah, was yeah, on yeah. Friday. I think if he looks at the whole weekend, he's like, okay, managed to manage to get away with about everything I could hope for out of this race. And I'm going to take that and we'll head off to Austria and see what happens. I, I also have to say, um, Lewis is, is, is a sportsman and I think he's genuinely happy that it was a good race. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. It was a good race. And, and, and in all fairness, Brad, the better team has probably won. The better driver car combination over the course of the weekend has probably won. And I, I try to say this to my kids all the time. I would genuinely rather lose a great race than win an easy race. I, I agree. I think Max was the, the driver in form this weekend. Red Bull and Verstappen were the best package. Uh, I think it was almost surprising, actually, that the two Mercedes got among them as much as they did in between Verstappen mm. and Perez in qualifying. And I think everyone was reasonably satisfied with the outcome. But I do think that Lewis's mentality in not defending too hard in that, that particular move and post-race where he was pretty calm and, and kind of um, reserved in his responses, it wasn't wasn't getting too disappointed with everything shows a little bit of confidence going forward that maybe the the pendulum might swing back in their favor through what really is quite a long season yeah. still to come. Yeah, playing the long game, which is fantastic. In 2009, we would have loved a Lewis Hamilton that played the long game, Nick. We didn't get that. 
Yeah, well, just reading the uh, the chat room, you can yeah, yeah. chat live if you follow us on YouTube and click the little bell, right? Yeah. And um, they disagree with us. They, they think I'm wrong, that Lewis was not okay, and maybe that Brad is wrong, and that he doesn't have confidence <laughs> for the rest okay. of the season. So I guess we'll just have to agree to disagree. Well, we've got, we've got two races in two weeks, which will uh, quickly, you know, give us a bit more of an indication of, of where exactly we are in the season. I think the ebb is definitely in Max Verstappen's favour, and the flow is definitely in Red Bull's favour. And I have to say, in this race, particularly towards the end of the race, Max Verstappen, Matt, we have been educated by our Dutch listeners. Max Verstappen is showing his deity status within F1. So I'm not disputing that. He was super duper brilliant. Sorry if we've not spoken about him enough in previous races. But here he was honing in on the Mercedes and he got it done on raw pace. I think it was always the case that if Hamilton had any kind of defense at all, it was staying ahead of him. What I, what I would argue, Brad is that it is possible in a different universe today that Hamilton did manage to stay ahead. I think Hamilton had a bit of struggles through traffic. He hit a curb um, and didn't quite have confidence in the car underneath him today as well. Because that gap, at one point, it was a really steady five seconds, hit back markers, really steady four seconds. And then at three seconds, it just collapsed as he had a really bad run, I think, past George and hit curbs and stuff like that. So that tactic could have worked out Hamilton, if he raced 80% today, maybe 90% would have been enough to hold on. I agree. The margins were small. And actually, he was in the lead for longer than I expected him to be when I saw the gap coming down as quickly as it did when Max had first made that second stop. Um, Vivek Bala in the chat says that Hamilton not defending hard sends a psychological message to Max that Lewis will back off if he gets aggressive. But I actually think that would come with the kind of caveat that when it doesn't matter as much yet i think if this is the final race of the season it doesn't matter whether it's lewis or anyone any driver even bottas would have defended that one bahrain bahrain he thought he had a much better chance of of defending and winning that battle and defended a lot harder so there is a there is a case for picking your battles matt and having a bit of risk reward but there's also no doubt that verstappen won that battle today in in many ways yeah, I think in Lewis's mind, it was a foregone conclusion given the tires that he had. And given that, what's the point in potentially putting himself out um, defending? You know, you're absolutely right about that. But I guarantee you that if he thought he had the tires to hang on to the end, it would have been a much different kind of defense we saw from him. Okay, just heading this off quickly before I get emails. Uh, someone said, oh, Jay Ferguson, oh, come on, I'm a Lewis fan, but don't act like hitting a curb and traffic are excuses. I'm literally doing the opposite. I'm not making excuses for him. I'm saying those were opportunities to to do better and to potentially get closer to the race win, which he didn't take. That, As Lewis Hamilton fans, as the fans of Lewis Hamilton on this show, we are far more critical of Lewis Hamilton uh, than we are of drivers we don't care about. And that was an area where I just felt like he was slightly below perfect today. I, I would also say that I think Lewis is behavior around max show and also the other way around max's behavior around lewis i always get the impression that they respect each other in battles okay imola max ran him a little bit wider at turn one but really in general they i think they both appreciate that the other is exceptionally good and yes and don't if that was bottas with a tire advantage over lewis in the final two laps i don't think lewis would have given up on it as easily, I think he would assume that Max is more likely to 
he's going to get it. He's going to do it at some point. So yeah. why lose too much time? That definitely seems like a mutual respect. And I think that losing to a good Verstappen Red Bull package isn't as painful as losing to someone else. And I'm sure I'm sure Verstappen feels the same when Hamilton is there. It's just like, oh, you know, it's like being beaten by Federer or Nadal. You just go, well, they just played out of their skin today. All right, well, let's move away from that top battle a little bit. Um, next in the chain really was uh, Sergio Perez. I got a three-star review on iTunes from Australia because they were sick of the Perez fan club. So let me talk about all the ways in which Perez was desperately unlucky. Uh, no, lots of positives for Perez this race. I think we can start with the weaknesses. Is that fair? Still, Brad, I think a weak Saturday put him on the back foot. Potentially a, a weak start, although he absolutely sent it to make sure he didn't get stuck behind signs. And then falling behind in that first stint. So weak Saturday, I think just compared to Verstappen, I think Verstappen was probably just on it this weekend. Um, but the poor start... All right, he was poor off the line. But did you see how kind of the determination kicked in to not be stuck behind signs? Because I think he got stuck behind signs a couple of races ago and it just wrecked his race and stopped him being involved. And he just sent it from like three car lengths back, which was very un-Perez. Yeah, so qualifying, I'm not expecting Perez to to really challenge Verstappen very hard. So the gap to Verstappen is pretty expected. Verstappen's obviously doing an amazing job. Even if Perez was the benchmark of a really good Formula One driver. The gap to Verstappen is is the justified gap that you you would expect to an amazing Formula One driver. The start of the race, the start itself, I agree with you about the determination to hang on hang on to that position. And then I'm never quite sure when he he then drops back in the first phase. You've got Hamilton and Bottas quite close together with, with Verstappen in there as well. And then Perez is kind of gradually dropping back. I never quite know. Is this just Perez doing the Perez thing and having tyres left? to do something different. I'm sure if he was quick enough to have been ahead of those guys, he would have wanted to be yes. in and be in that fight. But given that he wasn't, does he then just sit back and take slightly less out of the tyres and wait for something different to happen? I don't think it was deliberate, Matt. I think he was... I don't think there was an option for him to close up and stay with the top three in that first in. Try not to be shocked that I might disagree with you there. Because <laughs> okay, okay. I had the same thought early on. I was like, oh, that gap to Valtteri has really kind of gone out. Maybe he's struggling with his tires a little bit. But then you can't discount the fact that he's a tire whisperer and maybe Red Bull want him going long to complicate Mercedes' life through the first set of pit stops. And as happens, I think he went to, what, a lap 24 or 25, significantly longer than any of the other front runners. And what I noticed was about lap 15 or 16, he started to close up and was suddenly running the exact same lap times as Verstappen and Hamilton and Botas through that first pit stop section. So I think Red Bull said, save your tires. We're going we're gonna to split strategies and you're on the one stop. And that's exactly what they did. Okay, fair enough. So maybe that's a case of uh, me wanting too much out of Perez and after a race win. Now, nothing's good enough. It's got to be a win since Baku or it's failure. Nick? I mean, going to oversimplify this a little bit, but I mean, he beat Valtteri. So as far yeah, as I'm concerned, yeah. he did his job today. He he won. And and he was in the pit window as well, Nick, which is what we were, we've been desperate for a second Red Bull to be. So even 10 seconds behind, he's still a factor. So Verstappen could pit. And know he was going to get a pass by them. Mercedes didn't have the same luxury. They would could have, you know, could have been held up. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's yeah, almost the back. ideal position for him to be in, isn't it? It's almost, it, he's definitely not going to give Verstappen a headache. 
he will give Mercedes a headache if they pit and come out behind him. And he's far enough back that he's going to give them a headache relatively early on when they start to to catch him. It's not going to be, you know, they'll catch him after more laps because okay. he's actually closer to the pack. Okay, so. so what we're saying is traditionally we think of the the drivers being competitive at, say, the first pit stop to really influence whether they go for undercuts or overcuts. But with Perez, they have a slightly different tool where, I mean, if you can go an extra eight laps, potentially you can create a headache. Also, Matt, I guess they've always got that pit stop window as well to think about, where if they keep doing this all season, at some point there's going to be a a safety car, which is just going to give Perez free tyres and put him up front. Absolutely. And uh, contrary to Mercedes, which I think was forced into going one stop with both of their drivers because of the damage to Botas tires. Red Bull had the option of splitting their strategy so they could cover the one stop with Perez and they wound up gaining the position uh, from Botas. And at the same time, they could two stop Verstappen and let him go for the race win. So yeah, I think Perez a hundred percent delivered on his job today. The chat room is being really, really super positive about the the job that Perez did. And I think everybody is uh, at the moment. So maybe a bit of expectation management. Interesting comments from him in the pen that this is, you know, it's still race seven. So it's still relatively early. If he was still getting no podiums, no results at this point, we'd be wondering, you know, if he was stuck in the midfield, we'd be asking questions and saying, oh, this was a wrong choice. The second Mercedes uh, Red Bull seat is just cursed. But I think he's got that monkey off his back. You know, a win and a podium is just enough to take the pressure off. I think I'd like to move our personal conversation away from would Albon also have done that? I think, you know, we've done that to death and there will be, we'll never meet in the middle. The people who think that Albon and Gasly were just unlucky and if they had this car, they'd have the same results uh, are never going to be persuaded otherwise. And I don't think we're ever going to have the side by side comparison again to really test it. So just moving that away from that and just taking it on its merits this season, Matt, the pressure is off Perez to just say like, oh, justify your seat. It feels like everybody thinks that the seat is justified for him without comparison to anybody else. And in fact, the conversation about can he get a contract extension, that's starting to go on the table as well. So his comments were, if I could do Paul Ricard again, I'd be in a better position. Well, I'm sure a lot of drivers would be as well. But he pointed to Austria as a track that with as a driver getting used to a new car, he's going to have Austria one and then immediately have Austria two and feels that would benefit him. So it's all looking, it's getting there, isn't it? It's only race seven. We're all right. Yeah, it's only race seven. Marco is saying very positive things. And as you state, uh, he is delivering the results that Red Bull hired him for. And if you want to stay in your race seat for the following season, you're going to want to make sure you take care of that business. And he's absolutely doing it. Nicholas. And you have to remember, he practically leapt out of the car to get out of the way to let Max through. So definitely um, playing the team game when necessary. Yeah. All right. Absolutely. And I think that's what you've got to do when you're Perez. And if you're Perez, do we want the second gear? Do we want the extension at Red Bull? Do you want that, Brad, as a driver? Even though you know Max is there, you're going to stay as part of that team? Yeah, I I think he's not an up-and-coming youngster that wants to prove that he is the greatest in the world. True. Perez understands his place. He understands his strengths. And he also understands that you've got a much better chance of getting good results if you're in a car that's capable of getting those good results. It's all well and good beating Lance Stroll over a few years <laughs> yeah. in a racing point, but you're not going to be regularly winning races, although you managed it the once. 
in a Red Bull, at least he's got the chance. At least if he does the does the best possible job, if he is able to extract the maximum from the car, he will be in with a hunt, uh, in with a chance to to win races. And I think every driver in that situation thinks, well, okay, well, I'll do the job this year in 2022. Who knows? First four races, I pull a bit of a button, get a bit of a jump start, and suddenly the team has got to support me. I mean, it happened really with Massa and Raikkonen. That would that would not have been predicted that Raikkonen suddenly was taking the back seat, Brad. Anything can happen. The car next year, as far as you're concerned, might just suit you more. Max might go to Mercedes. Who knows? Anything can happen. And you're definitely not going to be in a chance in with a chance to win the championship if you're not in one of the or best like cars. Like at Williams or something. Exactly. And what might, in the next few years, have the potential to be challenging the top cars and be a top car wonderfully is McLaren because I like McLaren. And they, they've spent a long time in the wilderness in the Honda years in the GP2 engine years, they they have got a position at the moment, Nick, where they really do look like kings of the midfield at, at the moment. And it's just wonderful to see those two drivers fighting against each other. And I, I keep going backwards and forwards as to whether, oh, Ricardo's lost. Lando is the new king. McLaren are going to get race victories in the next couple of years. I don't know. There's There's an energy boiling and bubbling under, and I feel like something spectacular is is afoot it's really hard to believe how far they've come um the wilderness years the gp2 engine the alonzo years i mean it wasn't really that many years ago i think it goes without saying that i certainly never thought that i would see them here in any time frame like we are seeing them here absolutely brilliant result for them today they were Coming into the weekend, two points behind their main rival, Ferrari, which is something that I wouldn't have thought I would say a, a couple of years ago. Um, gone from two points down to 14 points up. So really took a chunk out of them today. Got the absolute um, best result that they could have expected. Um, and then i just like to say that right behind them was, was uh, a driver that I'm a fan of, Pierre Gasly. And he was, we haven't talked about him at all. He didn't really seem to get mentioned on, on the broadcast that much. And it was home, his home race and he came home P7. So I don't know. Yeah, but really we, happy about yeah, that. he was on the podium. He was on the podium the last race. And you can see it in his head that he's disappointed. And then he has to almost remind himself that P7's really, really good if you're in an Alfa Rosso. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get back to Alfa Rosso in a bit. But um, I'm saying it on purpose. I know it's Alfa Tauri. I know it is. But sticking with McLaren for a bit, Matt, yes, Saturdays need a bit of work, but it was, it was just wonderful to see them on the attack, both of them. They were attacking each other and everyone else, and they were seemed to be racing hard, respecting each other. It was, you know, it's just something to cheer for, for, for the long-suffering McLaren fans. Yeah, it was, and especially important was the fact that this race was dedicated to Mansur OJ, their principal investor, who was lived in France, if I've gotten my facts right, which mostly I usually do occasionally. And so I think it was important emotionally for them. I think it's clear that the hiring of Andreas Seidel was a brilliant choice for this team. But what I really love about it is you're starting to see Ricardo gain a little more comfort with the car. And he showed that by, uh, you know, putting his teammate more or less off track at the beginning. (laughs) But what you have to love is Norris drove a Perez-like strategy. He went deep on the medium tire in the first stint and had the tire advantage. And when he came back around, 
it was it was all over and they wound up being the best of the rest back to back and a better result for a midfield team you cannot ask uh brad i've noticed a trait in ricardo's starts which he he is very uh keen or willing to go off track at the starts and go very very wide and just keep two wheels like on the track on the start finish straight and quite famously a few years back was it in the red bull that there was a drain cover wasn't there at the australian grand prix because you had two wheels on the road and two wheels on the grass but with paul ricard it's less of an issue but he was just willing to go i think wider because norris sort of closed the gap and ricardo was just like well i'll just go i'll just go round you i don't mind and it was just it was a brilliant start and put him in you know put his mindset in the right place for the race he takes no prisoners. Uh, he's absolutely not ready to give up the uh, the mindset that he is one of the best drivers in Formula One. He, in his mind, he is just still getting to grips with that McLaren, and he's nearly nearly there. He was great in the early part of this race. I was really surprised when I suddenly saw Norris was ahead on the timing screens. I completely missed that situation developing. I actually thought Norris had been given a bit of a, a duff strategy when he'd been kept out for longer. The last I really saw of Norris was him pitting. And I expected him to drop well down the order. And then suddenly towards the end, he's ahead of Ricardo. I hadn't worked out yeah, how can, that happened. Uh, unpopular opinion. I I think Norris almost got gifted that because obviously Ricardo seemed to benefit early on by getting the undercut and getting a bit of track position. But this is not a track where track position is all powerful. So Lor- uh, Norris ended up going long and kind of benefiting in the, sa- benefiting in the same way uh, as Perez. But Matt, in th- this particular battle between the McLaren teammates, I-, I really felt like Ricardo had the upper hand, and I've been very harsh on Ricardo this season. Uh, he Norris only got the the lead, if you like, in that battle because Ricardo went off. So it just felt like it was Ricardo's to lose in that team battle, and actually Norris was sort of flattered by the strategy of it. Yeah, uh, but he was flattered by the strategy because he could run that deep into the race on the tires, and Ooh. that's the marginal tire management that. You still, I think, um, um, love to hear Brad's thoughts on this. It's making the difference between Norris and Ricardo at that moment. Norris has a degree of comfort with a car that lets him really manage the tires just that little bit better right now. I think we're past the point of it being a coincidence that Norris has finished inside the top five. Is it in, in seven of the last eight races or, or five of the last six? Yeah, yeah five He's, of the last a, eight, I think it is. A, a real high percentage of, of finishing as the best non-Mercedes or or Red Bull car, and occasionally finishing among them uh, on the podium. So Norris's form is no longer uh, out, outliers. It's no longer a fluke. It's, he's consistently excellent, um, and he's, he's completely on top of that car. Uh, okay, going to your Gasly, Gasly talking point there, uh, Nick. We've got Lauren. I've, I've missed her comment there. Uh, but Lauren basically just saying that uh, Gasly now has consistently high expectations. And it, and it does seem that any time there's a bit of attrition, a bit of chaos... Gasly is up there, but there wasn't that attrition and chaos today. So what we just saw was just a very, very good, solid result. And I just, I don't know where to place Gasly in like the the zeitgeist of Formula One. What's the Gasly legacy? Is there one? I don't know. It's hard to talk about that without doing what we don't want to do. And we don't want to compare, you know, his tenure at Red Bull to the tenure of Albon to the tenure. Yeah, but he was of, a baby. He was a baby bull at that point. He's a right. proper grown up bull now. I, I don't know. I was, I was pretty down on Albon myself. I was one of the people that you probably don't agree with, but I, I was probably, I was one of the people who was calling for bringing Gasly back. I, I wasn't. I wasn't an Albon fan. I'll, I'll, I'll be clear on that. I did. I didn't think that he was performing 
and taking the opportunities that he had. Um, Gasly, on the other hand, had the opportunity to go back to a midfield team and show how good he is, whereas Albon had the opportunity to go to DTM and perhaps, from what I'm told, isn't showing that same kind of uh, bounce-back ability, Brad. Okay, you, you take me down the path you want to go. Yeah, oh, so just on Albon, I think he finished fourth in DTM from 14th on the grid, so he, he did well. Oh, okay. Um, and yeah, on Gasly, I think you just have to remember that drivers are... Uh, drivers skill and ability and in particular in a particular series so how good you are at formula one for example isn't a static thing especially when you come into it quite young and you know and you're you are relatively inexperienced people can get better and uh, it's amazing what podiums and a race win can do for your confidence and as well as the environment you're in um, the people who are around you if you have a team that you you don't get on with, and I can say this from relatively recent personal experience, yes, sir, you can in a, in a yeah, high yeah. level British racing series. I know you do not get the best out of yourself when you don't feel like you've got the trust of the people who are around you in the team, running the team, yeah. doing your tire pressures, um, you know, helping you with setup and data. If you don't feel loved, you aren't going to be fast. If you go into an environment where you do really feel loved and you you are getting the results that are better than expected, you can be a better driver off the back of that. And I would be surprised if Gasly returned to Red Bull and didn't do significantly better than he did the first time, particularly with a car which is now capable much more easily of doing that job. So I'll answer your question with another question, I guess. So kind of the similar question that Spanner's had for you, Brad, about if you were Checo, would you want to resign for Red Bull? If you were Pierre, would you want to resign for Alfa Rosso? <laughs> They're Alfa Rosso now. So uh, Gasly actually answered that. Oh, if, if you were talking about would he like to resign for Red Bull in the future, he actually answered that himself when he said it has to be wanted on both sides, which I'd take to mean that he would say yes to Red Bull, and but he doesn't think they would want him. Um, to resign for, for Alfa Tauri, if there's no other options and he's comfortable in the team, then yeah, I guess fine. But I do think he's at the point where if there is an opportunity at a non-Red Bull family team, even if it means potentially a temporary step yeah. back in pace, he would probably go for it. I certainly would. The op- the opportunity to kind of break out on your own and, and not be a, a Red Bull junior team driver anymore would probably be beneficial, especially if he's now confident in his own ability. If you're Gasly and there's a seat at Aston Martin, you take it. If there's a seat at... Um... Alpine, you take it. Probably the top teams are not going to want him and you wouldn't want the teams uh, below that. But yes, Gasly looking strong once again. Two interesting teams in the midfield, I think, are Ferrari and Aston Martin. Uh, Let's start with uh, Aston Martin because what are they doing with the tactics, Matt? Every single race, their tactic is, let's just not stop and see what happens. They are really, they've got a hammer and everything is a nail at the moment. At some point... I mean, you could argue that Baku was that kind of result for for Vettel, a higher attrition race. At some point, I think we're going to see the safety car in the, in the wrong point, and we're going to see two Aston Martins just at the, at the front of the grid randomly. Yeah, well, it seems like their strategy is let's qualify as poorly as possible. <laughs> a bold move. Put on the hardest tires possible, <laughs> drive to the end of the race, and see how far we've gotten up the grid. And it seems to work. And I'll tell you, you won't like to hear this, but Stroll is an absolute menace on the hard tire because he started basically at the back of the entire field. He started 19th. 
with only Tsunoda in the pit lane behind him, and he finished 10th. That's a pretty solid drive, and you have to be on it in order to make that kind of a strategy work. And speaking of strategy, hats off yet again to the Aston strategist. Yes, no, I, I believe so. I think they're, they're making the best of, of what they, they have at the moment. Brad, is it possible that Lance Stroll's natural driving style is also just naturally conducive to being fairly kind on the tyres and, and that's a weapon that, that Aston Martin have? Yeah, it's certainly possible. Uh, I love seeing them do this kind of <laughs> Every time. Aston Martin particular strategy where they're just out there and you see Vettel just miles up the grid because he hasn't pitted yet. Uh, and it worked. I love, I like to see it because it seems to be working. Um, it's nice to see a team able to, to pull something off like that yeah. consistently. But and- I, I do agree, maybe Stroll's slightly under the limit um, conservative style might aid this and maybe the development of the car has been pushed in that direction because of that historically maybe yeah maybe but also if they're sort of naturally qualifying 11th to 15th like q2 kind of qualifying they are consistently getting a tire choice which means that they are able to do this matt and this might just be their their natural tactic and their natural place this season but i think it's just making them a pain in the butt potentially Uh, as the races go on i think some people are going to have some some green colored headaches uh, they are because the Aston is super good with its tires deep into the race. And they're one of the few teams that can consistently point to performances that prove it. All right. And uh, Ferrari, Nick, I look, I know you tried to change to be a Red Bull fan a couple of years ago. We didn't allow it. We know you love Ferrari. And uh, the last couple of races have actually been very encouraging for Ferrari. Um, and actually, it looked really strong all through the practice sessions as well. It looked reasonably strong at the beginning of qualifying, uh, but the race it was just a disaster. I don't think anyone was predicting that. Yeah, I mean, they were nowhere, weren't they? I mean, um, where did we come in at the end? What, what was the what was the damage, like 12th and 16th? Or? Far. It was far down. I don't know. How do you, how do you, how do you explain it? Why, yeah, why... Why it's, was it so bad? It's a good Matt, question. Matt, me. Matt, why are they... Okay, so look, look, let's... I just wanted to see the physical pain on Nick's face, okay? I'm just a terrible person. That's all. The, That's all. The, the physical pain comes from, why are you asking me? I'm not a Ferrari fan. Yes, I'm not are. actually watching the race from this lens like you want me to for your reporting. <laughs> actually, the two drivers, Matt, as we mentioned on the new show, they've, the two drivers they've got have ruined my Ferrari hatred because I like both of them. Uh, but they're like the anti-McLaren this season. They, they are strong at the beginning part of the weekend uh, and then they're falling away. I think that has been slightly uh, slightly uh, mitigated by tracks where it's very hard to pass. So now that we're back to kind of more natural racetracks, it's not, I don't, I fear, I fear for Ferrari for the next few races. Yeah, well, let's remind ourselves that the circuits where they did well were street circuits where you had unusual asphalt characteristics. The tires didn't degrade in the same way as they did on this track, for sure. And I think what you're talking about, why did Ferrari do so badly? Well, they couldn't manage their tires over a long stint. They were suffering with a lot of graining. The inside shoulder of the tire in particular, they were having a lot of problems with the front. And it's a vicious circle. As you start to lose that, you lose the tire temps. And once you lose the tire temps, you lose the performance. A two-stop might have been better for them, but almost no one went with the two-stop. And by time, they were they might have been able to... I think they were hoping signs could hang on to a points position, 
But when his tires went, they were completely done and everyone passed him in like a lap and a half. All right. And I think that that's pretty much uh, most of the, the grid, uh, Matt. I think you and I, we like to play a game of uh, coulda, shoulda, woulda. So I think in the coulda, shoulda, woulda, my nomination would be uh, Perez for coulda, shoulda, woulda because P2 was on. I think P2 was on. A stronger first stint sees him on the second step. And how strong would that have looked for Perez today had he had that stronger first stint and actually had ended up catching Lewis Hamilton, Brad? The, uh, Red Bull 1-2 at Paul Ricard, which has been touted as a Mercedes track. Oh, that would have been That would have been a cherry on top, wouldn't it? It, it would have been. I think he was probably looking stronger versus Bottas than than he should have because of the way Bottas was used mm, by Mercedes. Yeah. So I, I actually think Perez probably shouldn't have been on the podium. Um, had, had everybody done, had the, had Mercedes been a little bit more sensible with Bottas and, and maybe listened to to him. I don't know what you think about his comments <laughs> where he was quite vocal about. Um, Saying that he he was he wanted to stop again, and he told them in no uncertain terms, and they didn't. He was very calm about it, wasn't he? Though it's a little bit sweary, a little bit sweary. Uh, Yeah, and then so big on the coulda, shoulda, woulda list is Mercedes. They've got they've got a ton, haven't they, Matt? They 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 coulda undercut, they shoulda gone for two stops, Uh, they woulda won if uh, they'd kept it together a little bit at the end. So I think from Paul Ricard, it's it's a lot of big misses from Mercedes. I just have an overwhelming feeling that Verstappen had them covered today. I, I, maybe we're pointing to things that went wrong, but actually I think Verstappen had just a little bit in hand in the end. Yeah, you may very well be right. But the fun of this game is pretending how could Mercedes <laughs> have won. And you have mentioned all of the important things, the mistakes, the pit stops. Really, I, I'd say if you could change one, if Mercedes could change one thing, it would be Bottas not having the lockup and not having the vibrations because that might have been ultimately what hemmed them in from a tactical point of view. And that brings us to near the end of the race review and on to the podium. We can use that music because it's a thousand years old and the podium today was... Max Verstappen, Lewis Hamilton and Sergio Perez in an unexpectedly exciting and intriguing French Grand Prix. Uh, The national anthems were a thing. They were bad. So I will say, like, okay, you're going to say, oh, because it wasn't the British national anthem. Now's why you're complaining. So, no, I have always thought that playing the national anthems at the end of a high-octane, exciting, exhilarating race is just a mood killer. So you've got all that excitement. You go, and here in third place, Perez, why the crowd are cheering. And then your winner, Max Verstappen, why the crowd are cheering. Now let's stand awkwardly staring forward while we play just the dirgiest, most depressing music in the world. Like All anthems are broadly dull. I think it'd be much better if they had like a... A WWE style, each driver had their own like short kind of <laughs> sound clip that went with them, like a little burst of music. Because I also don't really like national anthems. No, I don't the, like any. Uh, the Dutch one sounds like a Christmas carol. The British one oh, is it's just dude. It's like we're trying to have a good time here, and it's just. And also, like, what do the drivers do? Like during that national anthem, they like wave, they look awkward. Like maybe we can play the anthems. 
after the champagne, like as they're walking off, maybe something like that. I'm in full agreement. Okay, good. But Matt, from a trumpet player's point of view, did the trumpets miss the apex? It was. It sounded odd to me. I couldn't figure it out. And also both anthems sounded exactly the same. Uh, maybe. I don't know. If I'm being honest, I wasn't even listening to the one after the race and the one before the race sounded exactly what I would expect that sort of thing to sound like. So, Okay. Well, in that case, it's time for some awards. The first award we give out is the positive one. It's the thing of the weekend where we get to be super positive and nice and bubbly. Uh, Brad, what was your thing of the weekend? Ooh, okay, I'm going to take an easy one. My thing of the weekend was that we had a really exciting, enjoyable French Grand Prix at Paul Ricard (laughs) that we didn't know the outcome of until right near the end. And I totally was not expecting that at the beginning. Can we put put an end to this whole, oh, the French Grand Prix and Paul Ricard is terrible and dire and will always be boring. Can we just admit that it was just one website just having a paddy that week and going at it for no reason? I actually, now I understand the layout of the track a bit more. I was enjoying it better. It's not a track I've really driven much in Sims. I've never driven it in real no. life. And unless you're playing kind of a, a recent Formula One official game, it's not a track in iRacing, for example, that we mm. use. So I didn't really know it. But now I think I do. And I enjoyed it more because of that. So I'm going to try and ignore the blue and red stripes. Is is Paul Ricard like when you move into a, a rented accommodation and you think you're not going to be there for very long, so you tend to leave some boxes in the corner and don't make it like a proper home? Like, can they just admit, okay, it's going to be a proper track, we're going to paint the outsides like green and stuff, and on Grand Prix weekends, we're going to like fill in the dead ends, like with just big black stripes to make it clear you're not going that way? It's not going to happen. I wish it would. <laughs> it, it's their brand, isn't it? The whole thing is is this kind of stripey feel, works for testing, Formula One's only there once a year, so it, it won't change. I think we'll just get used to it, and this will be kind of a quirk of this particular track. If you can overtake and it, it produces decent racing, then then great. Nick? I think it could be improved with just some on-screen graphics. I mean, we were talking about this a little bit before we hit the big red record button, but there were times where you had the little circuit layout down in the corner of the yeah. screen, and you're riding on board, and you're kind of following along, and you're like, okay, thank you very much. I understand. I'm at turn nine now. And then the graphic goes away. And it's like, well, where, where am I now? And, I mean, Brad was able to follow along, and I think you are able to follow along if you really make a concerted effort to follow along. Um, but I really think, yeah, I, I wish they would do something, I don't know what, to just visually distinguish some of the different areas of the track from each other. I think it's the nicest way that I can put that. Some polystyrene bollards at the dead ends, just to make it really visually clear. And before every race, I do try and sit and and just watch the free practice sessions and try and get my head around the the layout. The two tracks where I've really struggled uh, are here and actually Portimao. They're the two tracks where I've struggled to get my head around where everything is so that I can see a bit of action on track and immediately know where I am. Uh, Portimao, everything's a hill, so you're just in a valley. It's not, oh, look, they're in a random valley again. Uh, and here at Paul Ricard, I must admit, I never got to grips with it at the weekend. I just about figured, I thought I'd figured out the the turn one, turn two, chicane, left, right. and it, and it But there's another very similar corner that is the same later on in the track, and I, I never really got my head around those. Matt, what's your thing of the weekend? I've thought about it very carefully. No, you I... haven't. You're just thinking about it now, and you're stalling for time. Well. Maybe that too. Do you feel seen? Having now thought about it very carefully. (laughs) Okay. 
I was sort of, I was on the fence, but I'm going to say about the last five or six laps of the race was my thing of the weekend because it was the culmination of the entire weekend coming down to the tiniest of margins and the best of drivers. And you just can't ask for more as a Formula One fan. Fair enough. Nick Alexander, you have a Twitter account. It's at Nick Alexander F1. And you've not been very active in the podcast or media world because you've been busy rescuing people from places that are very high up and also running an unnecessarily far amount of distance. That's actually pretty accurate. Yeah. yeah. So uh, search and rescue volunteer and recently completed my first full distance marathon. Excellent. So I've been a little busy. Uh, I just take this opportunity to say everyone who runs a marathon is insufferable and should be avoided. Uh, you should avoid engaging those people in conversation, at, at, you know, at any, uh, any, uh, for any reason. So that Nick, is true. The book podcast. That is true. You should avoid us. Sorry. Go ahead. The book podcast. Is it coming? Is it coming back or is it dead now? It is dead it's dead in the water fair enough i never no one reads anymore I'm, I'm glad you finally have realized that okay at nick alexander f1 follow him on twitter what is your thing of the weekend yeah it's kind of like brad matt's kind of the general feeling the it going a lot better than expected yada 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 um i'm gonna say sebastian fettel Ooh. so pretty good pretty good race pretty pretty decent result ninth from 12th on kind of a kind of a contra strategy but i don't know just Personally, I just I, I really like Sebastian Vettel. He's he's fantastic, and I like how he snuck away with um, six championships worth of race helmets this weekend before before the race. I don't know if you saw that. So he swapped with Alonso, and he also swapped with Prost. And I just I thought that was really cool. And I like how he's always collecting things and inspecting other people's cars, and I just enjoy that. Full disclosure: you're like part German and a German speaker, so just want to highlight yes. your bias, Nick. Sure. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. If you'd have answered in German, that would have been very cool. Uh, has to recht. Okay. Excellent. Fantastic. Uh, my thing of the weekend. Oh, I don't know. I, my thing of the weekend just has to be uh, the 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 Red Bull the Red Bull strategy team and just how much they have learned and evolved and adapted to this championship fight because I am not entirely convinced they have the best overall package that they have the best overall car. I think Mercedes still have the most potential to get something out of the car and the most potential to turn up at a race weekend with the fastest car. I just think that right now, Red Bull are boxing clever. They've got a once-in-a-generation driver uh, in his kind of intake coming through and uh, they are punching a little a bit above their weight, but they are also making their weight felt as well. So I'm just going to give it to Red Bull and Max Verstappen. Now, here's the bit where we get to kind of judge everybody. Oh, no, you missed the apex. From our sofas, we're going to judge the finest race teams in the world. Let's go to Nick first. Nick, who missed the apex for you? Was it Ferrari? Was it definitely Ferrari? I think it was definitely Ferrari. <laughs> OK, you didn't have to do that. I know I pressured you into it. Now, go on. Who missed the apex for you, Nick? Can I say Yuki? I'm going to say I'm going to say Yuki. And I, I don't know. I guess it's kind of harsh, but, you know, with... Pierre up in seventh, really good result. And then, you know, Yuki kind of forcing himself to start from the pit lane and ultimately, you know, finishing outside of the points, but worked his way up to 13th. So probably the potential was there to to get some points today. And um, I think, unfortunately, only has 
himself to blame there. Fair enough. Brad Philpot, you are at Brad Lee Philpot on Twitter, but on YouTube you are young and dynamic, so you're at Brad Philpot and you wear caps occasionally backwards, which is sick. By the way, I like that. So Brad Philpot for all your racing streams. You are also uh, our driving expert for our iRacing podcast as well. So if you're into sim racing, search for uh, Missed Apex iRacing on your podcatcher of choice. Brad, who missed the Apex for you? The Mercedes strategy team just effectively throwing away the race lead at the first round of pit stops. I thought it was an obvious decision to um, cover off an undercut by Max. They didn't do it. It, I don't know why they didn't. I'm sure they'll come up with a rationalization in their post-race debrief on YouTube that they do each each race. Um, and I look forward to to listening to the excuse. And I don't, to be fair, they don't make excuses. They do tend to like hold their hand up to, oh, we made this mistake. We're very sorry. They don't need to be as somber about it. They treat it like a like they caused a death, and they you know they go like, oh, we did these things. The actions were regrettable. But you know, at least they are internalizing it but when they were a thousand points ahead and four seconds a lap faster than everyone else they could kind of be that kind of self-deprecating team do you think maybe now they need to be a little bit more like horner and just be like top cover for the rest of the team be super positive and just be a bit more i don't know what am i trying to say brad do you know what i mean like they just need to be a bit more punchy maybe and like less hr-y yeah, I do remember a recent example. I, I actually can't remember what, what the mistake was they made, but in a recent race, they, they also threw away uh, something which was obvious. And their explanation, in, they really did try and rationalize it in their kind of in their debrief video they made. And I didn't really accept the, the excuse. They said something like, oh, well, there was, there was nothing else we could do. And, and it sounded really, it was kind of edging towards that Horner-esque, it wasn't the team's fault. You know, oh, was, okay. we did the best we could. So maybe they are starting to to take that position. I don't believe this one's particularly defensible. They they threw away that track position. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. I think Mercedes are not getting the potential they could out of their car at the moment. And I think they need to start fighting Red Bull. Instead of fighting just themselves and their level of excellence and fighting the track, I think they need to directly start competing, punching, undermining, getting in mind games with Red Bull Racing, because Red Bull Racing are absolutely bringing it to Mercedes in 2021. Uh, Matt, you are at MattPT55 on uh, Twitter. And since your wife has given you permission to be on this podcast during your family vacation, I think we should also plug her uh, at A. Weaver Writes. She writes romantic novels, and uh, you should follow her on Twitter, because she's very interesting on Twitter. She's a very nice person, and she writes brilliant books that you should buy. Yes, you should definitely go buy them and support me in my old age. Yeah, because Matt um, isn't going to be able to work for much longer and he still wants a Ferrari. So buy Amanda's books. The links will be in the show notes below. By the way, everything you're after will be in the show notes below. If you want to support us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Mr. Apex. The link, just click the link. And within two links, you're there ready to support us. You'll get stuff. Some Mainly a warm, fluffy feeling that you're supporting us but we'll try and make it worth your while as well. Go and check out all the, the different tiers. $5 tier is the most popular. Come and join us and be part of the Missed Apex community in our Slack group. The links to all the Twitter feeds and to uh, Amanda's books will be in those show notes on YouTube and your podcast player as well. Matt, who missed the Apex for you? Um, I'm going to go with the chassis conspiracy theory about Mercedes swapping <laughs> out the chassis, something they do every year. And oh, in particular, God. I have to mention... Yep. 
Nico Rosberg saying they never did that for me, only to turn up a tweet from several years ago where they said they did that exact thing <sighs> with him. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! My, I did I not say my thing of the weekend was Lewis Hamilton calling out Paul Dresta? I want a do-over. Lewis Hamilton saying to those guys, "Yeah, you're trying to create a myth because he's heard Paul Dresta and the whole Sky team." To be fair, look, I sympathise with the Sky team because there's a lot of content to fill. So you've got FP1, FP2, all that kind of chat and conversation. Qualifying is an hour. That program is two and a half hours. So there's a lot of talking points that they have to come up with but boy did they beat that chassis thing to death and the swapping of the chassis and and look it's not made any difference at the end of the day it's exactly the performance you would have expected out of Hamilton exactly the performance you would have expected out of Bottas as well but I I don't know how you guys feel this weekend's FP1 FP2 FP3 has made me almost not want to watch the build-up I got so fed up with the the build-up this week not just on Sky but also on Twitter there were so many like theories that people beat to death that Ferrari was strong. Brad, you're guilty of that one. You thought Ferrari were going to be super strong. You no, I don't think there. I did. I think I said Red Bull was super strong. And then you <laughs> told me, oh, so a Ferrari really ahead of the Mercedes? Yeah, because I think in, 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 uh, in, in practice, you know, you look for the midfield team that is doing glory runs to show you that the times don't mean anything. And I was pointing to Leclerc's time. Um, and yeah, I don't think Ferrari were represented or representing themselves properly. But, you know, they were really building up Alpine looking really strong at their home Grand Prix. And that was all glory runs. The whole chassis thing was being built up. Uh, Mercedes was struggling in general. Red Bull's pace was going to be supreme. And I just, I almost feel like I just want to drop into a weekend on a Saturday now, Matt, and just go, all right, well, that's the first competitive running. I'm not sure as a fan, I need all the mind games, maybe not every time, but it would be hard to let go of my lovely Fridays listening to BBC Five Live. Yeah, well, I think always the problem is the expectations of what can we really learn from Friday? And the answer is, well, maybe you can get an idea of some people's long pays. You get a general idea of like who might be quick or who's not. But you have to understand so much work takes place overnight that really, you're correct. If you want to get a good idea, you start Saturday morning and then you have, then you know where people are going to be. So maybe what I should do is just enjoy watching the programs on the Friday, but not just get, not be too invested in it and just remove my investment. Oh, I didn't do the missed apex either. Um, Haas, just in general, (laughs) I don't know. They're just going around the back doing their own thing. Young drivers causing chaos everywhere, Matt. I feel bad because Schumacher actually made Q2 technically this time round, and we forgot to mention it. Oh my god, like, this is it! Like, but if you cause the red flag that stops you anyone from overtaking you, we should just take that away from you as soon as you've caused the red flag. Ah, oh, back you go, son. At least sixteenth. Like he should not progress. At least. Yep. Well, uh, it's the argument is becoming stronger for that kind of rule, isn't it? It certainly is. It's, it's the younguns. The younguns are forcing us. Okay, we've got a couple of awards left. Is uh, this one? Uh, Bottas, Bottas, everyone, Bottas pony, Bottas pony. I mean, Nick, that was a proper, that was a proper pony that Bottas threw out. Yeah, I don't think that you can give it to anyone else. I'd be interested to hear if anybody has another one. It seems like the, just the absolute volume of radio transmissions from drivers was, was down today. And I don't know if that was because I was glued to the action or because the action was so good that they, that they chose to interrupt it with fewer radio messages from drivers Maybe, i don't know if anybody yeah. else noticed that but i mean you got a feel for valtteri um 
That was pure but, passion. That was a pure, like, emotional, angry response. Like, you, you feel like you're not fighting for a contract anymore if you just fully go on the radio and say, you guys messed this up, F, uh, F, and F, F, F. Yeah, I guess that's what he said. But <laughs> I, what I what I heard was frustration that he didn't get the optimum strategy per the driver feedback for the chance of the optimum results. Maybe one of the reasons you didn't hear as much um, radio transmission today is because some of the radios weren't working. Oh, I particularly yes. enjoyed Max Verstappen's engineer saying, uh, "Max, your your radio's really not very good," and he got the reply, "It's yeah." It was amazing. I had to laugh because you guys give me so much stick for being like really annoying pre-show, getting all your microphones in the right position. At least I don't ask you to change your mic position at 200 kilometers an hour down a straight. Yeah, if you could just get into your helmet and move your mic position, that's an absolute nightmare. I will say, though, only the vaccinated drivers had problems with their radio. Coincidence? I don't think so. All right. uh, One more award, Matt. That's the one that you give out and we will let Nick be the chooser of who gets this award and it is comment of the week all right matt which one of our fantastic chat room has tickled you pink has intrigued you has given you pause for thought well let's start with vaunt um mij Taylang, and i just hope they're enjoying a good laugh at my attempt at saying that name no chance that's even close. But okay, yeah. What did they say? Uh, what corner is this? And this one. Oh, that's Senia's. Uh, referencing our discussion about the track. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, all the corners were the same. Um, I think Stuart Neal is in with, if you cause the red flag in Quali, you should drive for Ferrari, is being the official rule from now on. Okay, that seems a harsh punishment. Sorry, Tafosi. Go on, carry on. Um, the Ferrari bashing continues with Jaco Ligthelm's technical directives is the hardest tracks for Ferrari lose performance on all those surfaces, which, ouch, but also kind of Any non-bashing Ferrari email-inducing comments? Uh, indeed, we do. We have Jay Moore with the Red Bull strategy team has been waiting so long to have anything to do. If, by the way, and if you're offended have- by any of these, Matt at MissedApex.net. Uh, but I think my favorite suggestion although maybe not the winner, is Bart Kevelham. Just use the country's Eurovision entry for that year as the anthem. Do you know what? I mean, it will be slightly... If we, got any, we haven't got any Swedish drivers. No, it was the Icelandic. That was the best one out of the Eurovision. We haven't got any Icelandic drivers. So no, uh, I don't care. Uh, Nick, have you got a winner from that bunch? I, I think I have to pick one that bashes Ferrari. I, I think... Uh... Jaco or Jaco directives is the hardest tracks for Ferrari. They lose performance on all those surfaces. Who was that again, Matt? Uh, let, let me tell me who. What was the username of that commenter? Jaco Ligthelm. Ah, there we go. Well, you Jaco Ligthelm are the winner of. Hang on a minute, I need to find the button. There it is. I knew where it was the whole time. Comment of the If you just pronounce the name every possible way, one of them will be right. Exactly. Or just double down and say whatever the correct thing was, was what you said. I'm teaching myself gaslighting and it's going very well, Matt. I might be the best at gaslighting. 
I was going to say next time, remind me to look at the usernames before I pick the comments, please. Fair enough. Okay, please do follow my panel at Brad Philpot at Bradley Philpot. I beg your pardon on Twitter at Nick Alexander F1 at Matt PT. 55 you can follow me as well i'm the best one at spanners ready and the show at missed apex f1 we're on facebook we're even on tiktok and uh, we're on youtube so search for missed apex podcast there please consider supporting us on patreon so we can keep doing what we're doing patreon.com forward slash missed apex we're going to see you again on tuesday tuesday night we are going to stream a quick news catch-up show with chris with jono and we're going to stream that live to our patrons and for everybody else That will be available on Wednesday morning. Every tier from $1 upwards in our Patreon stream can be invited to that. We're just making it a bit more of a chilled stream. But we will be back for Austria 1 at 8pm UK time on Sunday. Until then, wherever we see you next, work hard, be kind and have fun. This was Missed Apex Podcast. tell you what Matt I've got no edits written down and I don't know if that's because we're very good or because I've just I'm just less picky about what we head out and when things go wrong I just go ah do you know what that can just stay wrong forever you're like Hamilton and Vichy Kane ah we're beat ah we're beat there (laughs) (laughs) our lack of talent defeated us into that corner just let it ride let it ride nice to have you back Nick I know like you would be better off saving lives or whatever, but we quite like having you here. You know that's not my job, right? I don't. We <laughs> no do one that. knows what your job is. Counting. Your job is counting, isn't it? Yeah, it's numbers. Nick. That's why you called me Nick Numbers Alexander. Well, this is. I can't know your nickname given that this is the first time you've ever been on the show. And yet, I already had one pre-selected. What are the odds? Sorry, I have to interrupt you there to mock Brad. Look at Brad. Like, look how messy your room is, Brad. Look, you've just got your trophy and your helm, brand new helmet design, just lying around in the corner. That's just exactly where they are. They just happen to be in, in camera shot. <laughs> um, if I had anything to flex, it would also be in my bag. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 